This is Church of the Resurrection in Wheaton, Illinois. Today I'll be kicking off our Epiphany sermon series called Making All Things New. Specifically, we'll be talking about how Jesus makes all things new. Now, for those of you who, like myself, don't come from a liturgical background, you may be wondering what Epiphany is. I said Epiphany sermon series. That word Epiphany means something that has been revealed. And Epiphany is the season of the church calendar right after Christmas in which we celebrate Jesus revealing who he is to the world. It's a beautiful liturgical season, but I have to admit it's one of my least favorite times of the year, at least in Illinois. See, I I grew up in the tropics, and so I've always had uh, something of a challenge with winter, to say the least. Before Christmas, it's okay, right? It's cold. We get some snow. And that's all right, because it's all part of the anticipation leading up to Christmas. It fits in with the fairy lights and the warm beverages and songs about chestnuts roasting on an open fire. Then Christmas comes, and it goes. And New Year's comes, and it goes. And now we're about to find ourselves at the time of the year where we find out who has been observing the 12 days of Christmas and who just hasn't had time to take down their tree. Uh, We'll see which one my family is uh, in a few days. At any rate, Christmas is over, and what we have left is winter. And winter. And more winter until heaven knows when. We don't know if it's going to stop. It might be spring for like two days, and then it's winter again. But honestly, even when I've lived in parts of the world where there wasn't much of a winter, I've always felt a little bit of a letdown after the holidays. It's a similar feeling that you get after coming back from an amazing vacation or from a conference where you had a life-changing experience. I've come to identify it as the feeling of not having anything left to look forward to. In 2010, a group of Dutch researchers wanted to see how vacations impacted people's experience of happiness. And so they gathered two different groups of people. They had one group who was about to go on a vacation, and another group that would not be going on a vacation. And they asked them questions to try to ascertain their level of happiness, as well as one can do that. And so they asked these questions, and it turns out, as you might expect, that the group that's about to go on vacation was happier. Surprise, surprise, I'd be happy too if I was about to go on vacation. But what was surprising was after the vacation, when you'd think the people who had been away would be all happy and, 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 and excited, they asked questions again to ascertain their happiness, and this time there was no significant difference between the two groups. This reinforced the results of an earlier study that found that people tend to experience stronger emotions when we think about future events than when we think about past events. Human beings, it turns out, are wired for anticipation. As long as we have reason to think that the future holds something good for us, we can keep our head up. We can keep looking forward to that next good thing. But what do we do when we have that nagging feeling that we've left our best days in the past? At one time, perhaps the future seemed bright and limitless for you, You could do anything that you wanted, be anything that you wanted to be. And then perhaps over the years, limitation after limitation 
disappointment after disappointment has fallen across your path. If this hasn't happened to you yet, don't worry, there's still time. But it's natural over the course of our life to discover gradually which of our hopes are well-founded and which ones are false hopes. The passage we read from Isaiah this morning was written into a context of dashed expectations, of failed hope. I'm going to be referring to our reading from Isaiah chapter 60. So I encourage you to turn there if you have your Bibles with you. And if you don't have a Bible, there's one in the, in the seat right in front of you uh, underneath it. But Isaiah is writing to a people who had left their glory days behind them. Everything had looked so bright for God's people. He, he had promised their forefather Abraham that he would bless him and make him a blessing to the nations. He said that he would give him the land of Canaan, give it to him and his descendants after him forever. Then years later, when God's people were in slavery in Egypt, he brought them out through miraculous signs and wonders, and he planted them in this promised land and gave them victory over their enemies. And he established a king, David, on the throne, and he told David that one of his descendants would be on the throne forever. After David came Solomon, who built this glorious temple and the Bible says that the glory of the Lord filled the temple, making his presence tangibly known to the people. God was on Israel's side, and they had every reason to hope. But then things began to unravel, and it started when the people began to rely on other sources of hope. Solomon began to rely on foreign nations and started worshiping other gods. The nation had a civil war, David's descendants had, at best, a mixed track record of following the Lord, and the land descended into idolatry and injustice. Ultimately, God would allow foreign powers to invade Jerusalem and take its people into exile. But even before it got to that point, things were looking pretty grim. We're not sure exactly when Isaiah 60 was written, but we can see something of the context in the previous chapter. I want to read a portion of Isaiah 59, if you want to turn back, starting in verse 2. But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. It goes on to describe the evil condition of the land. I won't read the whole chapter, but I'm going to jump down to verse 9 so that we can see the effects. Therefore, justice is far from us, and righteousness does not overtake us. We hope for light, and behold, darkness. For brightness, but we walk in gloom. We grope for the wall like the blind. We grope like those who have no eyes. We stumble at noon as in the twilight. Among those in full vigor, we are like dead men. We all growl like bears. We moan and moan like doves. We hope for justice, but there is none for salvation, but it is far from us. Can you think of any sadder words? We hope, but. The context of Isaiah 60 is hope denied. Darkness where they had expected light. Though these verses were written for Jerusalem, I, I think their words would resonate with people across the world and throughout time. You only have to get on social media to see outrage 
and dismay about the condition of the world. If you want to see what deep gloom looks like, log into Twitter. We all know that the world isn't the way it's supposed to be. We all know that something is broken, something isn't right, but hope is so elusive. What does it even mean for us to hope for a better world? At a Christmas gathering this year with extended family, we had one of those grab bag gift exchanges where everybody draws a number and then you either open a present or try to steal a present that you want from someone else. And this year, someone had wrapped up a bunch of lottery tickets as, as the present. And there were a few different contenders trying to snag them. And at the end of the game, the winner of the tickets explained why he went for them. He said, I was intrigued by the possibility. It's not that he actually thought he was going to win money, but he sure hopes he gets lucky. This is how we usually talk about hope, isn't it? The desire for a positive outcome, or maybe a vague belief that things will get better. But when the Bible talks about hope, when we see hope as a virtue, this isn't what it's talking about. Biblical hope isn't so much about aspiration, what we want, as it is about expectation. Hope has a basis. It has a foundation. It's what we expect to happen based on what we believe to be true. Our friend with the lottery ticket knew that his odds of winning were low. And if he doesn't win, he's going to shrug and go on with his life, right? But when you truly expect something, when you truly believe that something good is going to happen and then it doesn't, it's devastating. That relationship that you thought was going somewhere and it fell apart and it didn't end in marriage like you'd hoped, it breaks you. And that's why it's so important for our hope to be grounded in certain reality. Vague hope or hope based on something uncertain is not a virtue. It's a recipe for disappointment and despair. That's one of the problems with New Year's resolutions, isn't it? We resolve that this year is going to be different. It's going to be better than last year. But it turns out that a revolution around the sun doesn't in itself change anything. Too often, we can't supply a good basis for our hope, and so nothing changes. But even worse than baseless hope is hope based on an unreliable premise. I gave the example of a relationship that doesn't work out. Perhaps you think you're financially secure, you've, you've worked so hard, you've lined things up, and then the stock market takes a turn, and you're ruined. You have these hopes for your family and what it will be and, and, and who your children will grow up to be, and then they make some different life decisions that you wouldn't have made, and you're so afraid of what's happening in their life, and suddenly this sense of security you had in your family is gone. The recurring, pro the recurring problem that Israel had through the years was a tendency that's all too familiar, at least for me. It was a tendency to base their hope not on the promises of God, but on other seemingly reasonable foundations. The strength of armies, the power of wealth, the trustworthiness of political allies. But these false hopes would ultimately lead them to the situation we find in Isaiah 59. Yet, 
in the midst of the darkness. God had not forgotten his people. His promises were still true. And the prophet Isaiah foretells an event that would be the solid foundation, not only of Israel's hope, but of the hope of all nations. I'm going to reread part of chapter 60, starting in verse 1. Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the land, and thick darkness the people's. But the Lord will arise upon you, and his glory will be seen upon you. And nations shall come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising. God is promising this beacon of hope that will rise over the land of Israel. It's not a military victory or a political reform movement. It's nothing less than God himself revealing his glory in the land. But this time, the temple that he would fill with his glory was not a structure, but a person. Jesus, the Son of God, was born as a descendant of Abraham, a descendant of King David. God had not forgotten his promises to his people. He put a descendant of David on the throne of a kingdom that would never end. This king born in Bethlehem, this child, as unlikely as it may seem, was to be the foundation of the hope of Israel and for all nations. The church has long seen Matthew chapter 2, which we read as our gospel reading, as a partial fulfillment of the Isaiah 60 prophecy. You've got this actual star rising over Judea, and then you have representatives of the nations, wise men or magi from the east, drawn by the glory of the Lord. Have you ever wondered why we talk about the three kings when it doesn't say in Matthew that they're kings? We have the song, We Three Kings, Three Kings Day. Well, in part, it's because of this passage in Isaiah and, and the psalm that we read. and similar passages that talk about kings coming from the nations, bringing their wealth with them, including, as we saw, gold and frankincense, which we see in Isaiah 60 and Matthew 2. So the magi, the wise men, have a special place in the hearts of those of us who are not ourselves Jewish. I think sometimes we forget that all the other characters in that nativity story are Jewish, Mary and Joseph, the shepherds. The Magi are the representatives of the nations, of the Gentiles, of us. And they come to pay homage to the newborn king of kings. They were late arrivals. They came later, but their presence in the narrative gives us an early clue that Jesus came to deliver not only the descendants of Abraham, but the descendants of Adam. Arabs, Africans, Europeans, Asians, North and South Americans, Islanders, We are the nations that are streaming to the light that rose that night on Zion. The Jewish shepherds came first, but the Gentiles followed after. Now, you may have noticed that I said Jesus' birth was a partial fulfillment of Isaiah 60. I say that meaning not that Jesus' birth was insufficient or incomplete. Rather, it's foundational. It ushered in the beginning of something something new. There's more to follow after Matthew chapter 2, right? The world didn't wake up the morning after Jesus' birth and say, wow, no more darkness, no more injustice. Let's head over to Zion and worship the one true living God of Israel. No, there's, there's more to the story. 
Christmas is not the end of Israel's salvation story. It's not the end of our salvation story. It's the beginning of a new chapter of our salvation story. Jesus began his ministry in Israel, gathering friends and followers from among the descendants of Abraham, fellow Jews. He did wonders and signs, healing people, raising the dead. He taught about the kingdom of heaven, about the forgiveness of sins, about the life everlasting. And then he died for the sins of the world and rose again and ascended into heaven. But before he ascended, he sent out his apostles to tell the world the good news. And they went out and they started off telling the good news to Jews. And we see this amazing fulfillment of Isaiah 60 verse 4 where sons and daughters of Zion come to this new light from afar. Jews throughout the world were coming home to the kingdom of Yeshua, Jesus, the Messiah, King of the Jews. But then, just as the Magi arrived late to the scene, other groups began to arrive to worship King Jesus. The Gentiles believed in droves. Eventually, even Gentile kings bowed their knee before Jesus Christ, the King of kings and Lord of lords. Nations came to submit to the authority of this kingdom. Men and women throughout history have sacrificed their their wealth and their influence so that the light of Jesus might go further into the darkness and bring more and more people into this kingdom of light. Now, right now, the fullness of this kingdom isn't visible to us. We catch glimpses of it, right? When we break bread together at the Lord's table, when we see the poor and oppressed cared for, when we see sick people made well, when we see the addict set free by Jesus, we catch glimpses of this kingdom. But the story isn't done yet. There are yet more nations to be drawn into the kingdom. That's why we support missionaries. That's why we send people out. There are more nations to come into the kingdom, more sons and daughters of Zion to be brought home. The gathering of the nations will continue until God finally brings about our ultimate fulfillment of hope. At the very end of the Bible, you can turn there if you'd like to Revelation 21. We have this vision from John, one of Jesus' apostles. This vision of what this hope looks like in in tangible form. I'm going to read starting in verse 1 of chapter 21. Then I saw, and, and as I read, listen for the word new. See how often new shows up. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. This is what we have to look forward to, the renewal of all things. It goes on to describe the massive size and beauty of this renewed Jerusalem. And then further down in verse 23, I want you to see if you can pick up some themes from Isaiah 60. 
And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of the Lord gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light the nations will walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. This is what the whole story arc of the Bible is leading to, the renewal of all things, Jesus making all things new. He's preparing a new Jerusalem for us, and he has made it beautiful. And we're going to be with him. The dwelling place of God will be with us. And it all began with a star over Bethlehem. So where does this leave us now? Well, first, I don't want to understate the magnitude of the hope that has already arrived, even though we're not yet at New Jerusalem. Many of us are here this morning because Jesus has brought his light into our life and made us new. Something has changed in us. And we want to get that good news out there. We want the world to know that hope has come. The same Jesus who said, I am the light of the world, also said to his disciples, you are the light of the world. Jesus has kindled this great light in our hearts. And when he did that, we become little lights. We're going to see a beautiful image of this next week when we have our baptisms right here at the font. We're going to take this big candle right there, and at the beginning of the baptismal liturgy, the candle represents the work of Jesus. And we're going to lower that candle into the water. And then the baptismal candidates are going to be given their own candle, lit with the same flame as the big candle as they come up on stage. It's this beautiful image of the hope of Jesus the light of Jesus kindling hope in us. Each of us who belong to him carry with us a light that has been kindled by Jesus himself. Each baptism is a beacon of light telling the world that the great light has come and he is making all things new. And until that day when our heavenly home is revealed, we carry this light with us. We hold it fast. We hold fast to Jesus and we drive back the darkness wherever we can. We resist temptation. We fight against injustice. We love unconditionally, even when it hurts. We are the voice of those who have no voice. We drive back the darkness wherever we can because we want the world to catch a glimpse of the light that has come into it. We also invite others who don't yet have this hope to join us on our pilgrimage to the holy city. We have so many friends and family whose, whose path is leading them in a different direction. Their back is to the light. They can't see the light. Perhaps what they see is, is their shadow stretching into infinity before them. What if we, carrying the light of Jesus, carrying his hope with us, came around and alongside them and invited them into our homes, into our churches, invited them, as you will, around our campfire where they might see the love of Jesus, see the light of Jesus for them. During the Fully Alive conference, someone had a prayer image of bonfires representing worship communities in different parts of the region. And I love this image because a bonfire captures this communal nature of our hope. We're not called into a solo pilgrimage. God gave us the church as Jesus' body here on earth. 
in the church, our little flames come together into a bonfire. A coal that has been separated from the rest of the fire may grow cold and die out. But when we gather together, we burn brighter as a beacon for the world to see. This is why we have res groups. It's why we have service teams. It's why we have prayer ministers that pray for folks at the side of the church during communion. If you've never prayed with anybody there before, it might be intimidating. I, I want to tell you, it's, it's, it's not as intimidating as it might seem. These aren't people with holy superpowers. They're men and women filled with the hope of Jesus that want to pray with you, that want to share that hope with you, that want to help you walk into the presence of Jesus because they believe that Jesus has enough hope for all of us, that he has enough light for all of us. Sometimes what we need is to see that light in our brothers and sisters. So on one hand, our light has come. We have hope. God's even given us his church to sustain that hope. But sometimes it's all too obvious that we're not there yet. There is still darkness and deep gloom all around us. We see this reality immediately. In Matthew chapter 2, we have this, this, this beautiful passage about Jesus being born King of the Jews. And then right after that, he and his family have to flee one of the kings, the king who, who pretended that he would come and worship. He actually wanted to, to slaughter all the children in Jesus' village to stamp out a threat. And so he and his family had to flee as refugees to Egypt, to another part of the Roman Empire to get away. The darkness is still there. We still live in a world where tyrants reign, where the poor are still oppressed, where the slaves have not yet been freed where women are exploited, where even a child snug in her mother's womb may not be safe because her mother's awful circumstances have, have led her to the conclusion that she doesn't have any other hope. We face violent extremism, racism, anti-Semitism, the systematic persecution and murder of brothers and sisters in Nigeria and other parts of the world. And then there's the darkness in our own selves, the sin lurking in our hearts, the disordered affections, the disappointment or discouragement or even despair that weighs us down. Sometimes I think we know in our minds that Jesus is king. We know in our minds that he is making all things new, but the reality doesn't trickle down to our hearts. Or alternatively, we may just try to forget about it. We find ourselves feeling optimistic, but for all the wrong reasons. I want to invite all of us into a quick self-inventory this morning. It's very simple. I'm going to ask two questions. My first question is for anyone who's been experiencing an absence of hope. Perhaps you're fearful about your future, your own future, your family's future, maybe the future of our country. Or maybe it's not fear, maybe it's just a feeling that you don't have anything to look forward to. I want to encourage you to fill in the blank with the, of this sentence, okay? Everything will be okay if only blank. Did something come to mind? Everything will be okay if only blank. Hold that thought. If you're a journaling person, write it down. We'll come back to it. 
I have a second question. This is for those of you who are feeling pretty optimistic about life, pretty good about life. I want you to finish this sentence. Everything would be lost if blank. Everything would be lost if blank. And you may have an answer for both of those questions. That's okay. For both groups, I want to encourage you to give some thought to what filled in those blanks. Because whatever it was, there's a good chance that it's either currently your source of hope or it's vying to become your source of hope, for better or worse. And if it's a hope that's not grounded in Jesus and in his promises, I'm concerned. I'm concerned that you're setting yourself up for deep disappointment when that thing doesn't happen or that circumstance or that person that you have doesn't come through for you. I'm not saying that all the things we long for or the people we depend on are bad. We just need to be careful not to set all of our hopes on something that is temporary or changeable. Let us say everything would be lost if we didn't have Jesus. Everything will be okay if only Jesus is with us. Brothers and sisters, I know that the star over Bethlehem has not driven away all of our problems. But it started something. Jesus has begun his work of renewal, and he's kindled his hope in our hearts, his certain hope. And he's given us his church to sustain that hope. With Jesus, our best days are never behind us. They are always ahead of us. And the light of Jesus, which led the Magi to Bethlehem, is leading us now to that heavenly city where at last Jesus will make all things new. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thanks for listening. Our vision at Church of the Resurrection is to equip everyone for transformation. As part of that vision, we love to share dynamic teaching, original music, and stories of transformation. For more of what you heard today, check out the rest of our podcast. To learn more about our ministry, visit churchres.org.